Good morning. My name is Stan Horton. I have the honor of reading today's scripture, which comes from 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 29, starting on page 303 in the Black Pew Bible. If you do not have a Bible of your own or know someone who needs a Bible, please feel free to take one of the Pew Bibles as our gift to you or that person. Again, that is 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 29, starting on page 303. Please stand as you're able for the reading of God's word. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it, or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you not do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth to Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, the leaders, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they looked, they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, 
Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who was in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he hath humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his Sundays I will bring the disaster upon his house. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. I get the privilege of preaching this morning. So we're going to continue our series, Good Trouble, going through the life of Elijah. And today we get to 1 Kings chapter 21. My outline is this. First we will look at Ahab's wickedness. Then we will look at the Lord's judgment. And then finally we will end with the Lord's mercy. My sermon in a sentence is this. The Lord is merciful 
So we must humble ourselves before him. Those of you that are astute, you may notice that that's a slightly different sermon in a sentence than on the outline. Both are good sermons in a sentence. Uh, Both will help you remember our response. But my sermon in a sentence that I'm going with for this is, the Lord is merciful, so we must humble ourselves before him. Recently, I had the pleasure of watching a movie with some of the youth boys over at Andrew Maxwell's house. I don't know if you've ever tried to pick a movie. Just in general, it's hard. But then if you're picking a movie that needs to be entertaining for everybody and appropriate for everybody, it can be kind of a daunting task. So we ended up settling on the classic movie, The Emperor's New Groove. Those of you that know me or my movie-watching or show-watching habits know I love children's cartoons. I like the humor. (laughs) I like the adventure. Often, I like the morals of the story. So we got to, and I, I certainly enjoy the simplicity. So we got to en- enjoy this classic movie, and many, as I realized, of the boys got to watch it for the first time, which was one of the times where I began to feel my age a little bit more, because it was released before all of them were born. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, everyone loves this movie. And they're like, what movie? If you don't know the movie The Emperor's New Groove, it is about a selfish emperor who thinks that everything exists for him. His subjects exist for him. All the land exists for him. Any desire that he has must be met, and it must be met right away. In fact, one of the opening comedy bits is that uh, he's singing and he's dancing, and an old man bumps into him. And he has the old man thrown out of the window because he threw off his groove. Now, of course, in cartoon logic, the old man was fine. But it, it highlights very quickly what type of person the emperor is, how selfish he is. In this story, through a hilarious, in my view, uh, turn of events, from then on, the emperor, well, so the emperor decides that he, he wants a new home. One that he doesn't have. He wants a summer home to enjoy the sunlight and a pool. And he finds, in his mind, the perfect place for it on top of a hill that sings. The only problem is that there's already a home on this hill. Well, for the emperor, that's not a problem. He doesn't care. He calls in the the person and he says, Hey, where's where's the best place on your hill? Where does the sun hit just right? And the the guy says, and he's like, great, fantastic. Thank you for telling me. Now I know where to put my pool. And the guy's like, well, where am I going to live? He's like, I don't care. Not here. This is is the emperor. From then on, he, and this is why I love children's movies, he gets turned into a llama, a talking llama. And through adventures, he ends up being saved by the very man that he was going to demolish his house. And through their adventures, and eventually, again, it's a children's movie, everything works out. The villain is vanquished, and the hero is the hero, and the the emperor is changed into a new man who is compassionate and caring. 
Our next story, the story that we are going to be looking at, is similar. It involves a king that thinks that every whim and desire of his should be met. There is treachery. There is conspiracy. Unfortunately, in our story, the lessons that are learned are learned in much harder ways. And it doesn't turn out well for our commoner, Naboth. Here's the story. King Ahab is hanging out in Jezreel, and he's looking at his estate. He knows that rain will come soon, and rain will continue coming because the drought is over. God pronounced rain to come, and it rained. So he looks around, and he would like to plant a garden. But unfortunately, he doesn't have enough space in his house for his garden. So he looks around, and he sees that his neighbor has a vineyard. It's close to his house. He thinks, this is the perfect place. The sun hits it just right. I would like to have it. So he goes to Naboth, and he asks him to sell his vineyard so he can plant vegetables. He says, you can have a better vineyard if you want, or I can just pay you for it. The reality is, is this is what greed and power and covetousness will do to us. We will think we can have whatever we want, regardless of circumstances. This is the reality, and we we all think like this sometimes. We all look around at things that are not ours, and we think, that should be mine. I deserve that. I should have that. I should have the bigger house, I should have the nicer yard. I should have the better paying job. I should have the faster computer. I should have that thing that God gave to my neighbor. This is covetousness. It's a common experience. We are sinful, broken human beings that look at what God has given us and what God has given our neighbor, and we say, we don't have enough. I want what they have. Our desires are out of line. Our contentment isn't what it should be. Again, it's a common struggle. As this happens to us, if we are believers, sometimes as the Holy Spirit interjects, we listen. We are reminded of how blessed we truly are. We are reminded of what God has given us, and we repent of our coveting, and we are happy living in God's will. Sometimes, however, as we ignore the Spirit, we pursue our coveting like Ahab did. Ahab went and asked to buy the vineyard. This isn't something that he would have done if he was a good king. Not only because he was already, as king, rich and had so much more than everyone else, although that's certainly part of it, but also if Ahab was a good king and knew God's law and Israel's history, He wouldn't have asked to buy the field. But he goes and he asks anyway. And Naboth answers with a very strong no. Look with me in verse 3. Naboth says, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. That's a strong no. He's not saying, No, I like my vineyard. 
I like where it is, I've worked hard, my family has worked hard, we would like to keep it. Why such a strong response? Well, Naboth rightly values what God has given him. He remembers the inheritance that was given to the people of Israel. He says, this was given by God, his promise. I won't give it up, regardless of who asks for it or how much you're willing to pay for it. When we pursue the thing we are coveting, and we're met with resistance, like Ahab was, with a strong no, we have several options that we can go with. The first option is the best option. We can view that as God's providence. We can repent of our misplaced desires, and we can move on with our lives in a happier way. This is the option that will lead to the most joy in our lives. There are at least two other options that are much worse, and as we'll see, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. A very common response to not getting what we want is that we do exactly what Ahab does. We sulk. We lock ourselves up, we throw a pity party, and we bathe in our misery. We find comfort in feeling bad. Our lives are so hard, no one understands us. I didn't get my way and I can't go on. The real joy in life, I can't, I can't ever be happy again because I didn't get the thing that I want. I have been robbed of this joy, so why find joy in anything else? This is what truly would make me happy in life, so what's the point of anything else? This is a common response that we have. Sulking, as Sinclair Ferguson says, is a sign of a sinful heart. We are saying, I should have what God has not given to me. And because I don't have it, I'm miserable. Joy is not found in the Lord, but it's found in this thing. This thing that I can't have. Sulking is a sign of a covetous heart. Ahab fasted. Not out of repentance. Not out of seeking the Lord, but out of pity for himself. He was so torn up about not getting what he wanted that he stayed in bed and wouldn't eat. This is no way for a grown adult to act, let alone the king of Israel. The other way of dealing with desires for something that we don't have, we can't have, is that we move from coveting to theft, or even murder. This is what Jezebel does. She doesn't see Ahab at dinner, so she goes and asks him, she says, what's wrong, Ahab? And here, I imagine Ahab speaking like a spoiled child. He says, Naboth won't give me his vineyard, so I can't plant my garden. My interpretation And here, Jezebel displays her wickedness. She says, aren't you the king? Don't you govern Israel? Stop sulking. 
Get up and I'll get it for you. See, her view of authority is the same as Ahab's. She's just more proactive about it. Ahab says, I should get whatever I want, and when I don't get it, I'm sad, and I pity myself, and I sulk. Jezebel says, you don't have what you don't want? Go get it. Take it. Regardless of consequences, regardless, you are king. You deserve whatever you want. So she says, don't worry about it, Ahab. Go eat. I'll take care of everything. Then she gets to work. She schemes and she plans and she puts everything in place to have Naboth killed. But not just murdered. She doesn't just hire an assassin to go do it. She has him legally killed. She conspires with the corrupt leaders and the elders and some worthless men to falsely accuse Naboth of cursing God and the king. This is all put in place, it's carried out, and Naboth is taken out and stoned. When Jezebel and Ahab get get the news, they go to claim their new vineyard. This is yet more evidence for how far Ahab and Jezebel have moved away from God and his law. There's nothing about a king being able to seize property of an executed criminal. Instead, this is common practice of the nations around Israel. So not only do they conspire to have someone killed, an innocent man, they still have to use foreign rules to get his land. This is corruption and greed and murder and theft all rolled into one. Sinclair Ferguson also points out that this story follows what is laid out for us in the progression of sin in James chapter 1. James 1, verses 14 and 15, says this about sin and temptation. He says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, when desire has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Ahab started with desire for something that wasn't his. His desires desires weren't external, they were internal, they came from him. They were misplaced desires, but they were his. And he followed his desires, and he was enticed by Jezebel into sin. His sinful thoughts turned into sinful actions and ends up with the death of Naboth. This eventually ends in the death of Ahab and Jezebel as well. As we turn to the Lord's judgment, we will see what God has to say for this corruption. As Ahab goes to claim his new vineyard, I imagine he's feeling pretty good about himself. His demeanor has probably turned from sulking and whining to joy. He's excited to get to planting. He gets to tear up the vineyard and plant whatever vegetables that he wants, and he thinks that he's gotten away with it. It's a perfect crime. After all, aren't I the king of Israel? Can't I do what I want? There's no one that I have to answer to. What Ahab forgets, what Jezebel forgets, and they forget this consistently, is that there is someone that everyone answers to. There is one and only one ultimate authority who is in charge of everything, He knows everything. 
Nothing can be hidden from God. Elijah, God tells Elijah to go confront Ahab once again. So look with me at verses 17 through 19. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet King Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. God knows exactly where Ahab is and exactly what he is doing. He leaves no room for ignorance or innocence of Ahab. He will not accept the excuse of Ahab that all he did was sulk. Jezebel took care of the rest. Really, he's innocent. Ahab, as king, is also responsible for the murder of Naboth. And just as Naboth experienced a disgraceful death, the same will happen to King Ahab, the man responsible for the injustice. When Elijah meets Ahab, it seems that things have escalated between the two of them. Last time Ahab confronted Elijah, or sorry, Elijah confronted Ahab. Last time they met, Ahab greeted him with, Is it you, O troubler of Israel? You're the cause of all the, the drought and everything wrong. This time it escalates. In verse 20 he says, Have you found me, O my enemy? What a bold thing to claim. To call the prophet of God your enemy really is to declare God as your enemy. Ahab has moved so far away from the Lord that he considers God and his prophet to be his enemy. This is where sin will lead us. Eventually we view the good things of God as bad. Here, Elijah answers and pronounces God's judgment in 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 20-23. He, Elijah, answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and cut you off, and cut off Ahab, every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. Here we see God is not judging Ahab just for this one particular sin just for the conspiracy and murder and theft. Ahab has led the nation away from the Lord and into the worship of false gods. Ahab has treated his position as a personal power place, a way to gain. Ahab is a wicked king. And here's the judgment. Not only will the dogs lick up his blood, but God will burn him up and cut off his family, just like Jeroboam and Bashar. Whatever legacy Ahab had hoped to leave, he won't. He'll be cut off. Instead, his legacy will be and is one of wickedness and tragedy. And even though Ahab was king and responsible for Naboth's death, 
wicked Jezebel isn't left off the hook either. In verse 23, Elijah says, And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. And then he goes on, Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. Anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. The reality is is that God punishes wickedness. God will punish those who lead people away from him. It doesn't matter what position you hold on earth, how much money or power or influence you have. Sin, as James says, when it's fully grown, brings death. Justice will happen. God will not excuse sin. He does not sweep it under the rug. Because he loves his creation, God deals with sin as it should be dealt with. This is true of everyone, regardless of position. The rich and powerful leaders will be held accountable for their actions. They're tempted to think there's no one for them to answer to. But also, the common person, the everyday person, We might be tempted to read this and think, well, only the rich and powerful will be held accountable for their actions. Little old me, who cares? As we file our taxes, one thing that sometimes comforts me, I do my best in taxes and I try to be honest, but taxes are confusing. One thing that I'm tempted to think is, well, they don't really care about me. I'm small fry. They got bigger things to worry about. We might be tempted to allow that same thought to be true of God. God really is going to deal with the big and powerful people that are are causing massive corruption and suffering. Yes, absolutely. But God will also deal with the sin of every person. We may not have the same resources or craftiness to carry out our covetous desires like Ahab and Jezebel did, but our sin nonetheless is wicked and will be dealt with. Our call to worship this morning talked about one of the ways that sin will be dealt with. We get a vivid picture of Jesus coming to judge the world and bringing the wrath that sin deserves. So I want to read that again for us. John says, I saw heaven opened up and behold a white horse The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robes and on his thigh, he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God will strike down the nations. This is an image of a coming king coming in war to judge 
the vivid picture of the wrath of God being poured out on sin as a wine press. A wine press works by someone treading on it, squishing the grapes under their feet. Here, the one doing the treading is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is a picture of what sin deserves. The ultimate judge, and the ultimate judgment that sinners can expect. And certainly, Ahab and Jezebel should expect this. They are considered to be some of the most wicked rulers of all of Israel. The next couple of verses make that abundantly clear. In verse 25, the text makes a point to point out, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, who Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably, going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. In telling the story, the author stops and makes a point and says, Ahab was wicked. In case you couldn't tell, I want to highlight it once more. Ahab was wicked. No, he was more wicked than you thought. And after that, after that, we certainly don't expect this next part of the story. It seems like there are two big twists that come. The first is in verse 27 as we turn and look at the Lord's mercy. Verse 27 says, And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. Ahab had several chances to humble himself, and he didn't take it. In fact, it seems like he has hardened his heart more towards God and his prophet, as he says to Elijah, have you found me my enemy? Things have gotten worse, not better. But then finally, something got him. The coming judgment of the Lord was too much for him to handle. He broke down for the second time in the chapter. The first was because he was sulking like a child who didn't get to take his sibling's toy. The second is because he is confronted with the judgment of the living God. Ahab must have known by now that God meant business. After all, he saw fire come down from heaven and consume the offering. So he fasts here, not out of self-pity and selfishness, but out of humility. You and I might be tempted to look at this and think this is just some ploy by Ahab to get out of judgment. He didn't really mean it. It must have been self-pity, just like the first time he was fasting. As we look at the life of Ahab, that would certainly be in the realm of possibility. But then, we're confronted by the second twist in the incredible grace and mercy of God in verses 28 and 29. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. God is not fooled or tricked. God tells Elijah, Have you seen Ahab? He humbled himself before me. This had to be a shock. I imagine Elijah going to be like, Ahab? 
The same Ahab that I just talked to, who called me an enemy? The same Ahab that had 400 prophets of Baal? The same Ahab who is married to Jezebel who wants to kill me? That Ahab? Are you sure? But God here responds in unimaginable mercy. God relents and says the disaster won't come to Ahab, but instead will come to his son. God is giving more time for the kings and nations to turn back to him. Does this challenge your view of God? I don't necessarily mean your stated theological view that you might write out, but I mean how you actually live and operate based on your understanding of God. Many of us walk around thinking that God is just waiting for us to mess up, watching, almost hoping that we slip up so that he can send his judgment and punish us. In fact, it can be a common view to when we see our sin, we see something we do, we immediately relate anything negative that happens as God's judgment, as a direct consequence from the Lord. We think, God will see something I have done, and he will bring down the hammer. What we see, at least here, in this text, is it seems like the opposite. God had many opportunities to strike down Ahab. But it seems like he was waiting, hoping, for the opposite, for at the slightest turn to himself, God relents and offers mercy. God here is quick to turn from his judgment. Now, I'm not saying that Ahab turned fully to the Lord and lived the rest of his life serving him. In fact, in the next chapter, we see his death come as he listens to false prophets, and he is, his blood is, in fact, licked up by the dogs. What I am saying is that God here in this text was quick to relent from his judgment on Ahab after Ahab humbles himself. If that's the case, right after the text says, no, 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 Ahab's really, really wicked, and God relents, then we should be quick to humble ourselves before the Lord, to throw ourselves at his feet for mercy. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, this is God's self-description. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, of the third and fourth generations. This is who God is. In fact, this is so true of God that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Jonah knew God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and quick to turn from his judgment. I don't want the Ninevites to experience that. I want them to experience the judgment that they deserve. So when Jonah finally obeys and he goes and he preaches about the coming destruction, the people of Nineveh hear it and they respond in the same way that Ahab does. They respond by humbling themselves. And God turns from his wrath and offers them mercy. This is also similar to how the thief on the cross acted. At the last possible second, when he is experiencing the just punishment for his sins, 
He humbles himself before the Lord and experiences salvation. It seems at least that there are are two patterns, at least two patterns of repentance. The first that we often see in Israel's history is that Israel is experiencing God's judgment. They're being oppressed. They look around and they say, this is awful. Let's turn to the Lord. He will save us. And they do. They turn, they repent, they experience salvation. The second type that we see here in several other places is God tells his people or a person, judgment is coming. Because of your sin, judgment is coming. And they, they turn and they repent. And God often relents. Elijah's pronouncement of judgment from the Lord, it did not include a repentance clause. It did not say, judgment is coming, but if you repent, maybe it won't. Yet, when Ahab humbles himself, God relented and was quick to offer his mercy. My prayer for you and for me is that we humble ourselves before the Lord before it is too late. Don't wait like Ahab did. I don't know how many chances you will get, but I do know that you are breathing right now. And I know that if we humble ourselves, if we throw ourselves at the feet of the Lord, he will forgive. I know that if not, judgment is coming. You might say that's a bold claim to know something like that of God. But I know what he has told us, and I know what he has done. God takes sin seriously. Just like James 1 says, when sin is fully grown, it brings death. Yet, God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. He is wanting and waiting for people to humble themselves and turn to him. This is why Jesus came. The king of kings came and showed us what real love is. The Lord of lords said, this is how a king should act to his servants. Instead of looking at his servants and saying, you exist for my every whim and desire, and I will take whatever I want. I will hurt you to do it. Jesus looks at his people, and he says, I will give my life for your life, so that you can live and you can have abundant blessing." Sin is serious and must be dealt with. And God will judge wickedness. This is why Jesus died on the cross. Jesus took the wicked coveting and anger and lust and theft and every other sin, and he endured the wrath of the Father so that it would be paid for in full. Then he rose to life conquering death and hell and sin, giving life to all who will humble themselves and turn to him. So where do you need to humble yourself? If you haven't trusted Jesus, this is where you start. You need to admit to God that you are sinful. And you do, in fact, deserve judgment for your sin. This is humbling. To say of ourselves we are deserving of judgment is hard. You must recognize that he is king and you are not. That he is God and the rightful ruler not only of the world, but also of your life. This can only be done with a humble heart. You must throw yourself at his feet and ask for him to save you. 
which he will happily do. Jesus died willingly so that he can give you life. You must trust in the death, life, and resurrection of Jesus. If you already know and trust Jesus, where do you still need humility? Where do you still operate like you are king and can and should have whatever you want? This text implicitly asks us, what do we covet? But we're not limited to that. Where do we struggle with, with allowing the Lord to reign in our lives? As we come to the table, we will come in humility before the Lord. We'll come remembering his death and resurrection, remembering the blood of Jesus that was spilled for the forgiveness of our sins. We remember the severity of our sins, but more than that, the unsearchable riches of his grace and mercy. If you don't know Jesus, don't come and take. Instead, turn to him. If you would like someone to pray with, we have Clifton and Diane over here who are ready and waiting to pray with you. Or if God is speaking to you in any other way and you just need someone to pray with, come pray with them. As we come forward, we'll come forward and take up front. Or if you need more time, feel free to take it back to your seat. Spend time meditating and praying and then take. There's communion set up in the balconies for you. If you are unable to come forward, raise your hand and an elder will bring communion to you. We also have prepackaged communion in the foyer, if you would like. Let's pray and then take communion. Lord, we come before you. We want to humble ourselves. We admit that you are king, that you are God. We admit admit that we desperately need a Savior. We admit that our hearts are full of coveting and anger and greed and lust and things that are harmful for us and for others. Lord, we turn to you. We turn to you not on the basis of us, and the ability to change and do good things in the future, but we turn to you solely based on your blood that forgives sins, solely based on your mercy, on your grace. So Lord, I ask that you would pour out your grace and mercy on us now, that our lives would be changed because we know you, because we see you, Lord, gently point out our sin. And Spirit, enable us to repent and to change. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.